2K video coming to you recorded from Calgary, Alberta, the only city with an arena shaped like a horse saddle. For now, I'm not exactly clear on what's happening to it, but the Flames are getting a new arena in the coming years. I'm Nathan Rohrer, who once swept dirty water into drains in the Saddle Dome after that big flood in 2013, and I'm joined as always by Ryan McCullough. Hey there, Ryan here. Uh, yeah, also from Calgary. Any thoughts on this arena project? Oh, not in the slightest, man. I, I, if we, okay, if it means that we can get good musical acts in Calgary for the first time ever, great. Yeah. But right like now, if Nine Inch Nails like, can actually like rig up all of their screens and heavy stuff onto the ceiling, that would be really cool. I, I know this, is, this is going to be a controversial thing, but that would, you literally, like, like, Never in a million years would I go see Nine Inch Nails content, concert. Okay. Like, the only reason I went to see them is because I was told their audio visuals were off the hook. Crazy awesome. Oh, I don't. And then they just straight up couldn't do that yeah. in our city. I, I 100% know that that's the case because Trent is like that type of musical mastermind. But like I'm a give me Trent Reznor in film person. Do not yeah, give me... I was hoping they drop the entire social network soundtrack <laughs> like mid set. And just Atticus, yeah. Atticus rocks but... walks out, and you're just like, "That's it, that's the place." Yeah, oh, the Oscar winning score, dude. This is it. <laughs> no, for me, that would be the, my uh... thing. There was a guy yelling about this song, "Reptile." I'd be like, "Oh, oh dude, it's the Fincher," and then just start waving. <laughs> the only like, person no, in it's... the audience who's pumped at all, because for me, it would be like, "Oh man, look at that soul soundtrack." That like the all the heaven stuff. I'm like, "Oh, this is great." This is so pleasant and nice, everybody, and colorful. Looking around this industrial. That's rock what and I roll think room. of when I think of Trent Reznor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm actually really, really impressed by that score because you think like of who Trent Reznor is and even like who he gets used a lot in as in Hollywood. Because he's like when he does stuff with David Fincher, he's doing pretty industrial sounding things. Yeah. The yeah. fact that he did the soul stuff and it's like this light, fluffy, airy stuff is like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? I don't know. A three-dimensional Anyways. person, yeah. I'm but Ryan. Anyway. I'm Ryan, and I'm here watching movies with my friend Nathan. Uh, this week we're looking at Firestarter, which was directed by Mark L. Lester and Stanley Mann adapted it to the screen. Uh, so yeah, this movie came out May 11th, 1984. Cost 12 million, and I'm saying it made 17.1 million. There's some article from like. The in 1987 that isn't even linked on wikipedia that says it made like 18.7 or something yeah no way to verify that <laughs> so i'm saying that that didn't happen in all fairness there's uh, no way to verify any of these numbers because i don't think they took like they reported box office numbers we're kind of trusting the de Laurentiis group to have uh been you know transparent about that 30 some years ago so i don't know I'm not really sure. But anyway, why don't you tell us uh, about Firestarter, this uh, this Stephen King for sure. adaptation. For sure. <clears throat> she, Drew Barrymore's character, is the trouble starter. Pumpkin instigator. She's the fear addicted, a danger illustrated. She's a fire starter. Twisted. Fire starter. But I guess, you know, when I think about it, we're all just fire starters, twisted fire starters, because she came first as the true fire starter, twisted fire starter. That song's so good, man. It's a much better song than this movie. 
that said, this movie does have songs that I thought were kind of neat, but that was the first note I had was just like, wait, is this Tangerine Dream? This and then is it was. Tangerine Dream. Here's the thing. <laughs> Okay, that sounds cool on the surface. Like, oh man, Tangerine yeah. Dream. So I went like looking. I was like, oh cool, Tangerine Dream did the music. Oh man, they did the music for fifty-one projects, and a lot of them are hot trash. Well, I don't know if they're as involved in those as they were with this, which is to say, not. Uh, they, the story basically goes that they're just like brought a bunch of music over, and we're like, here, I don't know, choose some stuff. For like, like when we they have make a bunch these, of tracks, these TV movies starring. Peter Weller called uh, Rainbow Drive. They did the compose yeah. that music to that, and uh, like they probably just had a barrel of unreleased songs. And are you making like, an hey, excuse you wanna... because you like Tangerine Dream, so you don't want them to be involved with? These I don't terrible... especially love Tangerine Dream. I just thought like some of the stuff going on here was just like, hey, there's some like '80s beats and like mood synths going on that were kind of fun. Sure, uh, like just. The opening credits is basically just there's some smoke in the background and you're just hearing like beats. And I was like, okay, this at least has something (laughs) at the very outset. Uh, But as I mentioned last week, I did not love this book. So I was worried that this would uh, go weird. Um, But it didn't right away. Uh, The first opening scenes, I was kind of like optimistic that I'd get kind of a scanner's bootleg, you know? Yeah, Yeah, like. That Cronenberg movie where it's basically X-Men, but it's not X-Men. Well, it's R-rated, R- heavy yeah. R-rated X-Men. If- it's like heads exploding X-Men. But there's there's a mutant on the run, essentially, from the man. And in this, there's like a father and daughter who are on the run from weird agents in like big 80s cars. So I was just getting like sim- similar vibes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, the first 45 minutes is the fugitive section of the story where they're on the run. You get some backstory as to what's up with their powers. Um, and yeah, they were, they were trying to make some new Tylenol or something. I don't know. Uh, I, honestly, man, like, like this movie, I really struggled to pay attention to this film. I really did. Like I, it just didn't grasp my attention. I, yeah, that was kind of Ebert's issue with it too. I read his review. It was just like, yeah, it's just not. It's just not very interesting. Like, especially <laughs> like, after you do a. I mean, okay, Ebert's list was already a pretty questionable list that he chose to like, like highlight. So in his review, he talks about like in a movie with all of these things, including, and this is one of the things I was like, why are you? Why is that an interesting thing? Was a, a black person playing a scientist? And I was like, that's, what, that's what we say. Well, like. Hey, it was the early eighties. You can't, you can't make excuses. A... You can't make excuses for things like that. That's well, how it works. He's what? He's he's a he's a got a doctorate. That's exciting for you know. Uh, for that is exciting. It's just you can't make ceilings. excuses for like even like old stuff. It's hard to make excuses for. Like you can't be like you just have to look back and I say actually, like that was wrong. He shouldn't have said that. I, I was kind of annoyed with that character, too, because he seems just to be a substitute for, like, the Freddie Jones character that we already lost. Yeah. Which was, like, the original scientist from, like, the Lot 6 stuff, Mm -hmm. who has, like, kind of a fun scene of quackery with, like, George C. Scott and Martin Sheen, where he's just, like, like, I don't know if he's being hyperbolic, but he's basically just, like, what if there was a girl who could just set off a nuke just by thinking about it and then it's like yeah that's ridiculous yeah well if that's ridiculous how about this what if there's another girl out there 
and one day she'll crack the very earth in half. And I was like, why does this guy, like this guy is so dramatic and I love that. And then moments later, his nose is broken into his brain and he's dead. <laughs> so you don't get any more of that flavor in this story. Uh, courtesy of George C. Scott. George C. Scott, Ooh. who just, uh, just questionable decisions all around on the filmmaking oh, side of things. man. If we want to get into his casting, it's just it's bizarre on like several levels because he's playing this already like not great character from the book who's this like Native American stereotype, like this indigenous like hitman mm-hmm. who John Rainbird is the character's name. Uh here he's just quietly presented as John Rainbird and he has like a ponytail. And it's just like, all right, like George C. Scott isn't like doing a voice or anything. But he'll just be kind of casually wearing, like, a native pattern on his, like, uh, riding jacket later and stuff like this. Like, there's just little things where it's like, no, he's supposed to be a native character. It just doesn't at all come across (laughs) that way, really. Like, he's not – I can't tell – I think he painted his face, though. Like, in that original first scene, he looks kind of extra tanned or something in a way that's a little dicey. But as it goes on, it's, like, less and less noticeable. I think it's just less noticeable. Felt... Like, I'm looking at stills right now, and I'm saying, like, oh, I can see the, like, the tanner line on his hairline. The bronzer. On his hairline, yeah. 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 But, okay, even even just, like, he shouldn't have been cast as this character based on race alone. Like, I don't think he should have been cast as this character because, like, a key part of this character's, like, thing in the story is he, like, befriends Drew Barrymore and, like, tricks her into thinking he's just this warm, cuddly grandpa. Yeah. And Jersey Scott is so, like, gravelly and menacing inherent (laughs) that I was like, why why would you cast him? Like, this is the one case where you should have gotten, like, a cuddly comedian or something. So this is, okay. And then you're surprised when he breaks someone's face. So Jersey Scott is, we had this conversation, uh, was it last week with Hearts in Atlantis? Two weeks ago. Yeah, we're like, I don't think Anthony Hop- Anthony Hopkins has grandpa vibes. George C. Scott has scary uncle vibes. Okay, you know I, I mean? I, in my mind, I still think Anthony Hopkins is scarier to me than George C. Scott. Like, okay. George C. Scott's more yelly. Like, he's just like, oh, man, that guy's like, oh, who's going to yell at me a lot? But, like, he's panting, but what's he actually going to do? This is, like, the first okay. time I've seen George <laughs> C. Scott, like, capable of killing people and, like, doing that a lot. Like, I, I'm trying to think of, like, his other catalog of stuff where it's like, how often is he – he's grumpy a lot, but – a lot of grandpas are grumpy. He's not yeah, murdering Yeah, I guess people. he's more like, he's always surly. Yeah. He's not exactly, like, murderous. But that's where so. I kind of see, a, like, a good gramp, grumpy grandpa. Like, an Ed Asner can, like, lean into that pretty well, which just, like, puts, like, a on his face, and he can, like, oh, that's a grumpy grandpa. Whereas, like, Anthony Hopkins okay. is like, oh, there's a dude who could be who could be friendly, but he's dead behind the eyes, so he's a murderer. Like his, he's too it's cold to be f- properly friendly. It's Anthony Hopkins' dead eyes. Like, there's no warmness in his eyes for me that I'm like, that's where his, that murder's soul lives. So. Uh, whereas George C. Scott's eyes here, like, they do this thing where, like, one of his pupils is milky for, like, the first bit, but he got an infection in his eye, like, partway through filming. So he just casually puts on an eye patch at one point and never looks back. Like, that just, he just has an eye patch yeah. for the rest of the movie. Uh, I Which think the like, justification did... in the story is to like seem friendlier, maybe. Well, because like, so he's got he's intense. horribly scarred on his face, which yeah, immediately yeah. also would make it seem like this guy is not warm and cuddly. <laughs> like he he, he <laughs> has that many scars over his eyeball. He's seen some stuff. 
Well, and the relatable story he tells her is about being in Nam in like a prison camp. So, like, I don't really know why Drew Barrymore like goes for that. It's just like, man, this poor guy. He's just so disheveled. I'm gonna help him out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, like, Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Drew Barrymore. Like, I, I kind of really appreciated her in this movie because she. She proved that, like, no matter the content, she can elevate it. Like, she can try hard, even though everybody else is like, this is bad. This this is a movie where the whole entire cast seemed like they were just knew they were slumming it. Like, you think about this cast, man. Like, it's got Martin Sheen in it. It's got George C. Scott. It's got Art Carney. It's got, like, a, a young David Keith. I mean, the only person that doesn't really stick out is Heather Locklear. And Louise Fletcher's there too, and I didn't even notice her. Like Academy Award winner, like like, like Nurse Ratched. Yeah, yeah, she was like Irv's wife. Oh, like, she's Art Carney's, Carney's wife. Yeah, she's just doesn't really get a big moment or anything. She's just quietly there. Uh, so yeah, I was a bit thrown that she was in the credits, but yeah, Heather Locklear. This is her film debut. Uh, her and uh, David Keith were students looking for some quick cash. Uh, in college and they were part of this drug study that I think killed eight people out of the 10, but they're the two that like just had their mental powers unlocked. And then they were allowed to go. They're just allowed (laughs) to leave and start a family. It's like, well, you signed the waiver. So whatever. Goodbye. And then (laughs) years later is when they're like, actually we should get these guys back. What are we doing? It's like, yeah, yeah. they've clearly like of interest to our evil, not CIA. So we're going to have to. I'm now looking at Louise Fletcher and being like, oh, that was 100 percent is Nurse Ratched. Like she is fully in this movie. Yeah, she's fully in that movie. But like they don't give her a real beat at all. But even like Like, the one thing she gets to say is like, listen, like you're bringing a lot of trouble here. You just take the Jeep and get out of here. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, Like that's her moment. If you think about it. okay, so you have Art Carney and Louise Fletcher in this movie, in this in this movie scene. Like, whose friends are banking in all these, like, like top, like, great actors to come and star in Stephen King's Firestarter? Like, who? I think Dino is just that charismatic on the phone or something. <laughs> like, he he's apparently was just a legendarily, like, he can just sell you on anything kind of thing, you know? Like, he sold Universal on casting George C. Scott as a, a native, an Indian hitman. And it was just like, why would you well, okay. pay more money for that? Unfortunately, for though, uh, even at this point, there was still like, like playing, uh, like p- uh, white people playing other people nationalities were still a very commonplace thing. It's a pretty point. common thing. I just don't know why George C. Scott was like the big get gotcha. that they acted like it was. You know, well, especially when like, you look I at, like, like him fine. Like but... I like Martin Sheen, but he's coming off of like a significantly better like Stephen King movie the year before. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, he's in the dead zone as like Donald Trump, basically. Like it's great. (laughs) It it forecast all of that. It's kind of awesome. It's almost like, but when you look at the career of George C. Scott and Martin Sheen at this point in their career, it's not a high point. Like they're struggling. They're in a lot of garbage. Yeah. I, I, the one scene I felt Martin, like, like I just thought he was being totally wasted in this movie. And then (laughs) the one scene was like the Coco scene I thought at least had something like where he was like trying to sell this little kid on like no we're not the bad guys we're we're just trying to help out and like he was just kind of putting some polish on this lie he's selling like there was something there yeah but and then he's just like super enthusiastic about all the crazy like fire experiments 
do we get that on tape? Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And then it's just like, all right, like, what are you guys going to do with any of this? Because I like, I think this is kind of Ebert's point about just like the point of the story. Like what, like there's certain government people who want to kill her. And then there's other government people that want to just experiment. And what, what are they going to do? Like at some point, <laughs> they're just going to be done experimenting and then kill her for no reason. Mm -hmm. Like I thought they were going to weaponize her was the, the notion, right? I, so what's uh, rainbow okay. doing? I can't tell. Now you've read the book. So this is a good question for you. The plot to this movie made no sense other than to just continue moving forward until it stops at a dead heat, like stops yeah. dead in its tracks and turns into a very different movie. And I never really yeah. understood anyone's motivations other than John Rainbird, which is I'm going to kill you. I'm gonna kill everybody. Yeah, like this person's so powerful and crazy, and I'm gonna I'm gonna kill them. Yeah, like that's his thing. That's it's his like the thing. Ultimate it's like okay, I get that, but I don't understand any of the scientists' ideas. I don't understand what Martin Sheen's trying to do. Like, what is their motivations? It's not clear. Is this is the like you said? You don't like the book. You read it. How close... I felt it was sort of similar. Like there's sort of just this like dead stop that happens. Like there's this hard break in the narrative where they're captured. And then it's just like a totally different story for the rest of it. And I will give the movie maybe some points for at least like setting the shop's headquarters in a weird place. Like it's a plantation in Carolina or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like it's like, oh, this is at least interesting looking. I'm pretty sure it's just like some drab office building in the book. So I was just imagining like the most boring ass building. <laughs> and then all these lame events were happening in this lame setting in my head. And I was like, wow, this is terrible. <laughs> like, let's get do anything. Yeah. And yeah, I felt like both stories have this weird problem where, you know, it's going to go carry at the end. It, it has to. But they don't really get there. Like, honestly, it's just kind of this like conflict will happen because they won't let her see her dad under any circumstances yeah. and it's like can't you just like have a guy with a pistol in the room and they just talk to each other like five minutes every week or something <laughs> so she doesn't just get so mad that she uses her incredible earth-shattering powers that you know she has <laughs> like you know you're like helping her become more powerful and then you're just like whoa what's happening why is she like burning all of our people it's like what? Because you wouldn't let her see your dad. Like, that's all it took to make this happen. All you needed was a supervised pizza party, like, once, and this would be fine. But they just don't do it because they need this to tip over. And it does, but it's not really satisfying. So, like, uh, I just, I guess, like, I'm trying to understand what King's getting at here. Like, what, what is the point to this book? Is it just, like, one of those situations where he wrote a book and he wrote a book because there's been many times in his career where he just like, cause he's just like, he's constantly working and sometimes he finishes yeah. something and he just puts it out there and you can tell like, Oh, this is something he just needed to finish because he started it and he finished it. And now he's moving on to something better because that was not good. I feel like his core ideas here are just like, there's this government agency called the shop that deals with like weird stuff. Uh, and then there's pyrokinetics and telekinetics that are on the run or whatever, like, or telepaths really like, uh, we haven't talked about it much, but Andy McGee, uh, David Keith's character, he has like, uh, he can basically like tell people to do things they don't want to do kind of like David Tennant in that one 
Jessica Jones season, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Uh, uh, the Purple Man. Purple. Like, the difference here, I guess, is it takes a lot out of him to do this ever. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he really has to struggle, and, like, his nose is bleeding. Like, okay. I I couldn't help thinking about this during it and, like, after it and everything. I'm really glad Stranger Things decided they could just steal, like, five of these ideas because they did them way better, you know? Oh, for sure. Like, they... But the, like you said, this also just feels like a weird, like, sister book to carry, too. Like, a girl yeah. just has, like, telekinesis powers that can do things with her mind and then gets addled like, by the world. Yeah, Carrie, what if she was younger and had firepower instead? Exactly. That's like, okay, like that, it, that's an idea, I guess. I'm looking at, like, yeah. Stephen King's, like, work at the time. And, like, his first book's Carrie, so more mental powers. The Shining has the Shining in it, like, the powers uh dead zone has a guy who can like see things like he was obsessed with like telekinesis telekineticness like like telepathy kind of things at this point in his career and trying to make it work and then eventually started moving towards like what if other things are like outside of you are evil like well Cujo's around the same time i want to say yeah but it's like the first like time Christine where it's like and stuff it's like it's yeah. like where something else is evil outside of you because then he moves into pet cemetery he moves into uh like christine and uh like like where he's starting to like outside of him stuff is evil not yeah it you. sort of just seems like variations on a theme of just like what if someone had a weird power and then we'll we'll like, just he, look he's at like that an x-men fan but he wants like yeah. the x-men to be like horror creatures yeah so uh i guess this book came out in 1980 so it's actually like pre-scanners uh but the movie's post so that's what made me think about it uh but but yeah like basically this this character charlie it like 11 has a bunch of things in common with this like just like the experiments and like we're taking her away to like make her do various crazy telekinetic abilities or whatever here it's pyrokinesis but whatever and then the nosebleed thing like andy does this like he'll he'll bleed whenever he uses his power they kind of give that to l whenever she's pushing it too hard kind of thing and to be fair like stranger things is kind of like okay i like stranger things so don't hear this as like a negative criticism but they are co-oping ideas from the 80s and like their childhoods and they're kind of making a super amalgam show but like a good version yeah of it's that. like a stew made of their favorite ingredients from the 80s yeah. pop culture and i think that's great and i applaud it and i'm not mad at it no. but i get why some people are like oh but it's like your nostalgic brain is saying that but if you if you're actually looking at firestarter it's not good like you need to like, like I, i'm not be gonna, fine with gonna, someone harvesting ideas and then improving them later i'm never gonna like, say the mcduffie brothers are, are great original writers i'm gonna say like they're good entertainment writers like they write they're good great fan writers or yeah. something it's like they got yeah. fan fiction like they created this like stephen king universe where everything happens in their one place and they just made it all work like it is, yeah. it, it feels like you're reading it, but without like all the Stephen King problems. Almost no, like, like they're they feel free to like. Uh, I think that actually started as an it screenplay, didn't it? Like they they actually did a a draft for that project. It didn't get like approved, so then they retooled it into their own little thing. That's and not shocking. To went me in all. other directions. Yeah, because yeah. those those kids like, get along really well in ways that you'd expect like someone to write. It's like, 
all right, we still want a group of friends. Like, we want a quartet, essentially. And they're going to be dealing with, like, Dungeons & Dragons monsters and whatever and telepathic powers. And, yeah, yeah. Like, feel free. Because some of these OG articles from the 80s, like, hey, do, do, like, living vehicles or something. Like, you can take another crack at that one. Because we didn't – they didn't nail it the first time. (laughs) But they've they've already set the rules now so that those things won't necessarily happen. Other than, like, maybe – L can control a vehicle like her with her mind, like turn a vehicle. Sure, on. powers so, up lawnmower yeah. with her. Mind. I guess I could, actually that could happen because I could see the upside down world creatures starting to also develop. Like, te- like they haven't really shown a lot of telekinesis that happen on their side, other than possessing mm-hmm. people. So, I mean, I guess it could happen. Anyways, yeah. Um, yeah, like you, you can tell that like these ideas have been done better since, but like, True Barrymore is trying her hardest. Like she's clearly like oh yeah no like they throw her some weird curves immediately like the first stuff she's doing in this movie is being like traumatized because her mom died (laughs) and like she accidentally burnt her once and all this kind of stuff like she has to cry a bunch right (laughs) up front uh so yeah no i i give her credit for making it work to some extent like if anything ebert kind of laments them not giving her enough character like they did to christopher walken and dead zone where it's like Oh, this power is a curse, you know, like this, this would seem like an awesome thing, but it's totally not. And then like, you get a little bit of like, she can't really control it. So she inadvertently does stuff that she feels bad about immediately, but it, it's underdeveloped. That's what I mean. Like there definitely are moments where she does things and then she feels bad, but then because of the, like how quick the plot's moving, you never get a chance for her to feel bad, really, because her dad grabs her and they go running off into the somewhere else type of thing, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, early on in their kind of, like, fugitive thing, there, there's a thing where they jump off an overpass and, like, fall into the road. And I just, I found this just a perfect example of this thing that creeps up in all sorts of movies where there's just, like, an insane truck driver on the road because he, like, sees a little kid with her collapsed parent on the road and he doesn't he just honks his horn <laughs> he's just like hey you gotta get out of my way <laughs> and it's like you have brakes you could change lanes yeah. it's like no no this is really inconvenient <laughs> for me i gotta get this load but to I mean, like, milwaukee that's just you know? really it's bad just... suspense building right like that's uh it's like oh that truck's gonna crush them and it's like what it's like 20 minutes in the movie that can't happen so what are we doing and then last second he swerves can we talk they, they can survive. we talk mark l lester yeah oh yeah what's up with our director here yeah because this guy this is not a great example of what he goes on to to direct like he directs in my okay. opinion two of the most like bombastic action films of like the late eight mid late to mid mid 80s and then into their oh. 90s. He did yeah, uh, so. Yeah. He did Commando. A year later, I he think did... this movie got him that gig. Yeah. So and he's yeah. like perfect for Commando. Like Commando is like a highlight reel. It's like it's again. Nathan and I were joking about Venom Two before the show, and I made the joke about like how sometimes Venom Two has scenes where it's like it's just a highlight reel. Like somebody said like previously on Venom, but there was no previously on because it's just showing you like here's what you need to do to get to Carnage being in this movie. It's just a clip show of nonsense. This action. movie actually yeah. does that though. Like it actually <laughs> opens with like a with like the opening credit montage is them establishing the relationship, and then all of a sudden, 
post like credits, immediately the kid gets kidnapped and Arnold Schwarzenegger goes on an eighty minute like rampage of getting his daughter back. They have a pretty good device in that movie where it's like if once this plane lands in like Cuba or whatever, the jig is up and they'll know that you escaped and are on the re- revenge path or whatever. So there's like he has to get this done in like one night. Yeah. He has to like figure out what island his daughter's on and like rescue her before this international flight gets to its destination. Exactly. It's like all right, whatever. And he's just throwing saw blades he's and throwing saw blades. shooting everybody. He's pushing he's yeah. like impaling a guy and then he's telling impaling a guy on this like cooling vent and he says cool off or something like that. Like it's Yeah, making quips all the time. It's no, of... it's it's primo eighties cheese, like yeah, yeah. No, so he's capable of, of something. Well, cause it then, just like, doesn't really come to the front here. My next favorite that never gets talked about but is actually hilarious is uh, Showdown in Little Tokyo with Dolph Lundgren okay. and Brandon Lee. This movie yeah. is so funny, but like unintentionally so. It's also like a good 75 minutes, so it's like you're not there long. Uh, Brandon Lee often throughout this movie, he's like the quipster of the partner, of like the odd couple, and he yeah. jokes about Dolph Lundgren's penis size like three times in this movie. Like he jokes it's about like, how large it is. We need a running gag. And it's like, I got it. Yeah. I, I, and then <laughs> yeah. there's a scene between Dolph Lundgren and Tia Carrera, like a sex scene. And literally you can go on YouTube and look it up. It's hilarious. Dolph Lundgren is on his back on the bed. Stoic, like stone faced <laughs> Ivan Drago. And Tia Carrera is on top of him. Just over, writhing around just writhing <laughs> and moaning and all the things and it keeps going back and forth and it's like her in the the peak of ecstasy and him just being like just pure like ivan drago stoicness <laughs> on this bed and it's like what is this movie is this do they know do they do know they what know they're doing this is really silly like maybe <laughs> i i know it has some cult appreciation but oh yeah, I, I, I love it i think it's, it's, a, it's it's definitely one of my my favorites of this era it's just so okay. like the action's actually pretty solid too, but it's also but, just yeah. So both both of those movies have tons of like weird personality to them. Like they're really zippy. Maybe that's DeSouza for the one case. I I don't. Oh know, no, but, but I would say like I would make the argument that both like both of these movies are like eighty minute movies, and they both have like a, a personality, a quirkiness to it. I actually like. I think we should give Commando more credit because I don't think like not a lot of people know. It's like it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger's first like really really big like non Conan foray into action Terminator. films type yeah, of thing, yeah. right? He like he's like a good leading man human being. Yeah, like, and it, like set up a lot of stuff. but it set up a lot of like the one-liners. Like there's not a lot of one-liners in Conan or in Terminator. Like it's he's No, up, like his comedic sense gets to come in a little bit. Exactly. And well, and develop some. Yeah. Steven DeSouza is a big part of that, but like Commando It's set sort up of wildly of inappropriate with how violent everything is, but it's it's what it was, you know, he's throwing people off cliffs and then joking about it. Exactly. Uh, but like, <laughs> you know, there's a quirkiness, a funness, like a lightness to this like really heavy movie, like action film. And Sh- Showdown yeah. in Little Tokyo has a similar quality where it's like, this is like a really silly movie that's light and airy and fun, but it's like really violent and hard. Yeah. What was our running time here? I feel it was like an hour and oh, 50. Significantly longer than I went in. Like literally speaking, I went to sit down and watch this movie last night and I was like, Oh, it's 9.30? Great. It'll just be done by 11 because it's a 90-minute movie. In my brain, 97 minutes, conv- maybe. I was convinced it was a 90-minute movie. And I paused it at the hour mark, and it's like 15 minutes left. And I'm like, what? How? <laughs> what? 
I like so yeah. upset. I was so upset because I was done. I did not want to watch it anymore, but I did. <sighs> I kept watching it. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to like prune this tree for positives, but I, yeah, we got we got Drew Barrymore. I mean, I hate fixating on this, but th- there was a distressing story where it was like, oh, John Carpenter and like Bill Lancaster almost made this movie, and then the thing didn't do very well. Uh, so Universal said, nah. And and their screenplay was like significantly different from the book, but Stephen King approved it. So I was just like, that sounds great. <laughs> Why didn't that get to happen? What? But Starman wouldn't have existed probably because it's the same year. Okay. So, yeah. Are you a Starman fan? I haven't seen it yet, but I recently got jazzed up about Young Bridges in Tron. So Yeah, I, you know. I watched Tron for the first time last summer, and it's a pretty solid movie. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Like there was a lot going on. I forgot about it's a, it. So. But it's so for me. It's like I. I mean, I didn't. It was pretty basic. But it's just like it's really cool looking. Like it's just the aesthetics of it. Still like oh, they went for a look and and went they went all out. Yeah, yeah like they committed <laughs> to know. an idea. Uh, yeah, sometimes to a fault. But that I even liked when it was to a fault. Yeah, I yeah. I've also this is I think you and I talked about this like. I think there's only one John Carpenter movie I've never seen now. And I think you have the same boat where it's like, that's it. Like that's the one. Yeah, no, it's, it's weird. I'm sure it's fun. I just know it's kind of like a positive vibe, like, like happy movie in a weird way. And I'm rarely looking for like tear jerky sci-fi schmaltz is my perception of it. Maybe it's better than that, but I don't know. Uh, But yeah, that's also 84. So had these cancel each other out. I'm sort of, like I'm torn because I don't know that this ever could have been that great of a movie because <laughs> I don't love the source material. Sure. Uh, but them starting in a place where they're willing to like differentiate it a lot was was intriguing. So unfortunately, this is a much more faithful adaptation to the book, which isn't a plus in this case, really. I'm trying you to know? think of like other times where where Carpenter adapted something somebody else's work. And it was like the only thing I could think of are Village of the Damned and Christine. Mm-hmm. Um, Christine, from what I understand, is pretty faithful to the book. It's pretty faithful. It prunes out a couple ideas, but it's you know you you got to get into a reasonable running time. You can't just and have it's still more a pretty long movie actually. Car. Like for a, a Carpenter I think, horror I, film. I don't think the book like just straight up tells you about the origins of Christine. Like I love the opening scene of Christine where it's just right off the assembly line in Detroit, the minute it was made, it was evil. And it was like biting people. A guy had a heart attack in it. It's just like, this is great. Like this is dumb lore, but I love it. Whereas they're like mysterious about it a bit. And it's like, Oh, I don't know. But like the original owner, blah, blah, blah. And there's like a half hour conversation with some old man about what really went down. But I don't know that they ever just like say why Christine's evil or what's going on with that. It's just, yeah. Well, and then Village of the Dam is like it's just a remake of a movie which is based on another book, but it's pretty faithful. It's just made like a more like R-rated version of something that was never R-rated. It couldn't really be when it first was made. And then like so. when the book was first written too, right? Like it was not an R-rated book. It's just like he put yeah. cuss words in a movie that didn't necessarily need cuss words. <laughs> that's what he did. Yeah. Did yeah, you end up rewatching like... it? Which one? Not yet. No, it's definitely on my list though, and I I saw my old rating and it's pretty high, so oh, I'm really? I'm intrigued. I, I don't I know why. It. I think it was I had this vague sense that you came out of it not loving it. 
Well, I, I've a lot of the like I even had like the ward at like a seven, and I was like, "Is what? the ward that good?" No. <laughs> like I even I, don't like, I like the ward, and good, I'm gonna but... tell you right now, it's not that good. I just was just like but I had a good day or something. I had to like it because it was like the first John Carpenter movie in the ten last... years, and now it might be the last ever type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Which I hope not, uh, man. I really hope it's not. Yeah, it's such a maybe bummer. he can ride this Halloween wave into one last game oh, or something. Small aside, did you hear about the? Did you hear the the smallest of good newses, potential good newses? Gene For Hackman what? was like Gene Hackman had an interview recently, and he talked oh, about how really? he's like he's like yeah, I don't really want to come out of acting. I mean, if they could figure out how I can just stay home and be in a movie, I'd think about it. And I was like, everyone online was like, green screen exists green screen exists like you can just like bring a green screen he could act he could be at a yeah s- just throw a green screen behind gene hackman he literally he could, could be been... in the mandalorian because that's how they shoot it it's like pure <laughs> green screen now sure why not just one last thing instead of welcome to mooseport that's what i mean like you just uh, like it's you think about like sean connery's last movie was like it was either league of extraordinary gentlemen or a really terrible animated film where he played a character. Like, I can't even remember it. But like, a made-in-Scotland movie yeah. that, like, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just, like, this. that sucks. That's Is that a legacy we want to, like, leave off on, right? Like, retire from acting? Like, Jack Nicholson also. Like, he's still alive, but, like, his last one is How Do You Know? Like, that really terrible, nobody-liked-it... Uh, James L. Brooks movie? James L. Brooks movie. Yeah. Isn't it basically a glorified cameo anyway? Like... Is he really in it he's that not, much? Not, he's not in it that much, but he's in it. And it's just like, oh, that sucks because okay. he's in it. So, yeah. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Can we talk about David Keith for one second? Did oh, you sure. know who this was David, prior to watching this? Like the this? actor David Keith? Yeah. Oh, very familiar with David Keith as a crew. I okay. grew up like he was on, oh, what TV show was he on when I grew up as a kid? Anyways, he's Matt Murdock's dad in the dra- in, Dave- in Daredevil. Like he's Ben Affleck's dad in Daredevil. He oh, plays... in in that movie, yeah. like the Ben Affleck movie. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, in my whole entire life, even though they are very different people, that I can see that are very different people. Keith David and yeah. David Keith, I would often like mess up their names for because I knew <laughs> well, both of them. Existed. I was thinking like if you just put a comma after David, then it's just like oh, they're just referring to Keith David, yeah. and it's in. A, reverse order but that's what i mean like my whole entire life i was just like wait which one's david keith and which one's keith david i also grew up like for whatever reason my parents really liked an officer and a gentleman yeah i know he's got a big role in that but i never actually saw that movie i know my that's like exactly that kind of movie like my parents rented it and watched it and i was just like nah (laughs) that's what i mean like i I, and we watched it and we owned it like i would watch it a bunch of times i've seen it a few times as a kid i've never seen it as an adult but like that was one of them where it was like oh i i know this guy because of yeah, this okay. type of thing so i grew up like he was an indian in the cupboard which is like a movie i saw as a kid like he was in a bunch of things that i grew up watching him in sorry i'm just now trying to find the tv show that we used to watch like that was like i was like oh here here's david keith type of thing but anyways okay. you, you tell me about your anecdote with david i mean keith. i was generally just completely unfamiliar with him in this so it was it was sort of neat just having like this is just this character like i don't know who this dude is and he is just annie mcgee to me wait you had no idea who he was at all i don't i don't think so like i know i've seen things he's in but i never like took note of him (laughs) so he's he was just a fresh face for me in this in this story 
Um, okay. And yeah, he's he's got big mid eighties hair. <laughs> he does and, have big uh, he's hair. he's just trying to be a, be a dad in a world that's trying to get him. So, you know, it's it's tough. <laughs> I will say a minor dumb thing. I I just really got hooked on for some reason. There's a scene where they're at the lake house and uh george c scott is gonna attack them he's got a dart gun uh he's climbed up a tree and he he's got a perfect line down the down the path you know he's gonna get him Mm -hmm. uh and they had this big thing where he loads up this like wheat bran box full of like food and i i was like okay this box is in this scene so that when drew gets shot he'll go oh and drop it and it'll spill food everywhere and that just didn't happen. <laughs> he like set the box down and then rushed to his daughter's side. And I was like, I don't know why that box is in the scene. <laughs> like, what was going on with that? It was a red herring because uh, you were just waiting for something to happen, and then you got surprised. I was waiting for a big spill, and instead it was just like, no, just they both got shot with darts. They both got shot with darts. Yeah, <laughs> and they don't and get their groceries. They don't so get the groceries. Whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, what was my anecdote? What you know? What distracted me for a good portion of this film? Uh, so at the beginning you know. of the movie, David Keith gets in the taxi and gives him a, the driver a one dollar bill, but then he like <laughs> mental yep. mentally forces the guy to see a five hundred dollar bill. Does a push on him, yeah, and yeah. I, and he was like, "I want to go take me to the airport. Here's five hundred bucks." And the guy's like, "Oh, for five hundred bucks, I'll do it." And he goes, and you're like, "I'm almost like, wait, there's a five hundred dollar bill? That's crazy to me." And so I went looking into American bills that used to exist. <laughs> oh i thought you were like expecting there to be like a penny drop moment way later like a post-credit scene where it turns back into a one dollar bill for him and he goes oh no 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 god ripped me off literally speaking where it was just like i was looking into like the six bills in american history that no longer exists so like okay there's like a five hundred dollar bill there's like a ten thousand dollar bill there's a hundred thousand dollar bill there's a two dollar bill and the other one was like a uh, no, there's like do two dollar bills not exist anymore in the states? They were like they're more recent, like 1969. Do you want to know about this? I can tell you. Sure. Yeah. Tell me about the two dollar bill because like I know people say like phony is a two dollar bill or whatever. It's like no, those were real. No, no, like, they're still okay. This really was, existed. This is what's crazy about the article I was reading. Like it was saying like in 1969, Nixon like stopped the per, like the processing of the two dollar, the five hundred dollar, and the ten thousand dollar bills. Because like the ten thousand dollar bones were being used for counterfeit reasons. Yeah, um, I could see that being the, a huge thing. Yeah, the two dollar bill still still to this day has over a billion in in like circulation. Oh, okay. So they they're still legal tender that will show up. Yeah, it's not like the pennies here. He said that like got the way the article was like unless you work handling cash, you probably never seen this bill. Because if you go to a bank, you're never going to get it. It's one of those things where if you brought it to a bank to deposit money, they would never give out $2. They'll always like, oh, we'll take this and give it back to the to the bank, like to the treasury, and then they'll give us $2 in a change. Like, like we'll take this out of circulation yes. now, but it's still circulating. That's great. I didn't know it was like 52 years ago it got pulled the plug on, but they're still in the system and they're still valid. That's Because there's just that. so many. Okay. When you think about like if they were to pull the, when they, if they were to pull the penny out of the system in the States, it's like – they're, they're billions There's and so billions of many. pennies. It's the same with Canada. Yeah, Do you remember yeah. how long it took for us to get, like, we just had to, like, the government literally just had to say, give us your pennies. Like, bring them into the banks. I know. And I, I deliberately kept a bunch because I was like, no, these are, like, going to be rare. And it's worth, like, $4. I don't care. I'm going to keep them. You should actually uh, go so through because there are rare ones in there that people do collect. 
Okay. Well, good incentive to look at uh, my coins again. Yeah. So I was, that that took a, that was like a, like I didn't stop (laughs) the movie, but I kept, I read about that article. So, but no, there's a full on $500 bill on the screen. So totally. Which like, again, at that point, the $500 bill was retired in 1969 and this was a plot point in a 1984 film. Yeah. 15 years later. Yeah. They were just like $500 bill. And I'm like, guys, like, you know, the Benjamins existed, right? Like a hundo. I guess briefly on on this kind of like him using his powers in this way, I rem- I seem to remember in the book like after he finds his wife has been murdered, when he confronts those two agents, he like in the movie he just kind of tricks them into thinking they're blind, like he kind of psychosomatically blinds them, yeah. but I seem to remember he like straight up makes a dude like gouge out his own eyes and then the other guy like runs into traffic or something. Like he like really gets after these dudes a little violently, which I was like, yeah, I would be really pissed too. So I'm more in line with that character's thinking than the movie guy who just kind of swears at them a little bit and like drives away. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, it's like, no, this dude straight up murdered your wife. Like Heather Locklear is no longer in this movie. You should probably drop the hammer on him, but no, not really. Yeah. No, (laughs) I, I, I think what was that beginning near the beginning of the movie? Oh yeah, this was like during the flashback at the airport. I think they're then he's that's there that's why uh, I was reading an article at that point. I just <laughs> about some money. <laughs> yeah, uh, some of that flashback stuff, like it was a couple of those moments that made me like think about the rating of this movie and just like the vibe of this movie because you get you're spending a lot of time with Drew Barrymore and she's just a little kid, innocently talking and hanging out with George C. Scott. And there were moments where I was just like, this movie is like almost made for children, but it's too violent. Like there's just too much gnarly stuff in it, but it's like mentality level is like totally kid friendly. Well, that's what I don't understand. Like relatable. Why did he put like a kid in charge? Like, I don't know. Like I was trying to make sense of this. Like, it's not quite like Danny Torrance. Like with Danny Torrance's story, it's like, Oh, we put, you put Danny in, in uh, the overlook because it's a kid being scared. And so therefore your, your kid is interacting with all these ghosts and it's scary. Right. Yeah. So that makes sense for like a horror level, but there's nothing like inherently super scary about this really silly situation of this, like FBI hunting down this child and her dad. So why don't like make the kid like a little bit older, like a young teenager or something like that? And well, and like she is scary to other people, but she's the hero of the story. Yeah. So you're never like scared about her hurting people. It's like yeah, those those dudes that rolled up on Irv's farm, they deserve that. <laughs> like she just straight up goes like pyro on them and is blowing up okay. cars and everything. Question for you: What do you, yeah. what are your thoughts on the uh, like fire starter effects? Like the blow dryer in the hair. Oh. <laughs> uh, the blow dryer in the hair, I feel like Tangerine Dream is really showing their worth during that because they have like some weird synthiness happen at the same time yeah. that kind of makes it seem like, ah, yes, okay, of course. But no, it's totally nonsense. Like, I don't know why that's happening. Like, someone's behind her with a fan yeah. every time it happens. Yeah. And like, her, she always blinks right at the beginning. Like, someone's, like, literally, like, flowing water, and she's always just like, oh, blinking, and then she's like, oh, yeah, I have to keep my eyes open, but it's, like, you have that... And gut- then, yeah, it's a lot of, like, close shots on Drew's eyes as, like, stuff's 
blowing up and people are screaming and running around on fire and like there's good flame suit stunts like there's dudes in in full body fire suits like flipping around it's pretty crazy but yeah i (laughs) the okay the one like extra gnarly bit that happened in like the farm standoff yeah like i think it's described in the book and i was like surprised to see it realized here they like zoom in on this like corpse that just got burnt mm-hmm. and there's like fat sizzling all around him and i was just like that's screwed up like that's <laughs> that's that's weird that you show me that but okay that would probably happen yeah <laughs> so um i don't know hats off to that i guess I, I was just i was really underwhelmed by just like almost every part of this like i was expecting like more big fire stunts but i was like like when the whole thing gets introduced at the beginning of the movie when she's in the airport and she lights that dude's Boots on fire? Shoes on fire? Yeah. He has like a one-liner at that like afterwards because he's running through the place with like his feet on fire and he jumps into the toilet and then like security comes like and like, hey, get out here. And he's like, like, can't you let Can a guy put finish? put on first? Yeah. Like, and I was just like, oh. Yeah. Like. It's this, this is, what is this movie we're watching here? It's like, so, and then she's so like freaked out that she almost hurt this guy or whatever, but it's like the movie treats it kind of like a joke. Well, so it's just, okay, so what did you think about the flashback narrative of, like, the, the movie opens with them on the run, and then you have these dream sequences, like, the wavy, like, the really cheesy, like, wavy, like, I, I think that I think that's how the book is structured, too. It's like an in-media res kind of thing, like, okay. it's in the middle of the action, and then during a downtime, we get to, like, reflect back. But, yeah, it does the full-on, like, shimmery flashback time. The transition between. Kind of thing. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, okay. I was the actual sure the... experiment room I was kind of into. Like, there's this dude with like blood coming out of his eyes, and it was like, this is another reason this can't be for little children. <laughs> uh, but, but again, it's more just like, like Drew as like a little like kid protagonist. I would just be like, I could see like being a ten year old and like wanting to watch this, mm-hmm. and like, it's not like the story's hard to follow. Okay. Like, you know, it's just it's that simple. But it's just too messed up on the edges to be for that target audience. So it's just in this weird spot where it's not scary for me. It's like kind of boring. But I think for a little kid, it might be kind of interesting. It's like this weird little kid power fantasy where like the adults are freaking out because you're dangerous, you know? So the one thing like maybe I kind of got to the end of this movie and I was like, oh, man, a sequel to this film might actually be interesting. Like, I'd like to revisit this kid as an adult type of thing. Well, and then unfortunately, we were talking about Ted in the last one. I was like, does Charlie go on to be in something like she could? She she lives through this. She does. There's a fire setter, too. Yeah. Rekindled starring two Hollywood greats. Yeah. Malcolm McDowell. At the peak of his downfall. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, Dennis Hopper also at the peak of his downfall, right after Space Truckers almost. Uh, I think it's just bef- it's a little bit before Land of the Dead, which I'm going to say I like seeing him in. Sure, but I that's like that's that. like appropriate <laughs> down. Like that's something you would hit on the downfall from a career he was having. A little bit. I feel like at that time, that was actually kind of a okay gig for him yeah but yeah that's what i mean like it's still though but it's still like a low budget zombie film not done by a studio and like campy well actually at that time it was weird because of the snyder reboot that was like the biggest budget 
zombie film Romero ever got to make. Like that had universal money. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. it's, but, but Dennis Hopper still kind of like, like nah, water. Yeah, I know. Like he I'm still did a good job in a solid movie, but it's still like slumming it. Like this isn't blue velvet. Sure. So, yes, no, this is not, this is not him at the peak, of course. And of again, course. Uh, a movie that you were like, Hey, for kids, it's like, this is a TV miniseries. Like this isn't a movie. This was a TV yeah. miniseries, which is, an important thing to observe is also Malcolm McDowell is who they got to play John Rainbird in that. So still casting nutty. Uh, and also he survived. <laughs> wait, wait. Yeah. I was about to say like, wait, he survived. <laughs> Cause yeah, at the end of this movie, George C. Scott is like hiding in the barn with a pistol and he's going to, he's going to kill them. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, Andy uses his like kinesis powers to make him like or telepathic powers to make him jump out of the loft, and then he gets like totally fireballed and like thrown through a door yeah. while screaming "I love you" and it's it's terrible. Uh, but yeah, he fully survived that with just like horrible burns all over his body, and then Malcolm McDowell plays him in Firestarter Two Rekindled oh, for Sci-Fi Channel. My one thing from like Firestarter Two was like when I was like I remember when Firestarter Two came on TV and I was like, oh, it's Connie from Mighty Ducks. Ooh, it's the girl, like the girl Mighty Duck from Mighty Ducks playing it. Also now as like an adult, it's like the she's like part of that Wet Hot American Summer crew. Oh, is she? Yeah, like originally. Oh, okay, like she was Katie on the original movie and then kept up with all these guys after that. So. I don't okay. know. I, I I never saw it, but obviously not going to see it. Also, just to let you know, something to get excited for. They uh, they did just wrap a remake of Firestarter starring Zac Efron as Andy, right? As Andy McGee. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he's David Keith in this. Uh I was wondering if that would actually come to pass, but yeah, it actually got produced and and made, right? Yes. So, uh, and positive, a person named Michael Gray Eyes. Oh, good. Is playing John <laughs> Rainbird, so a real right. a real indigenous person is playing an indigenous wow, person for the first time in like three tries at this character. <laughs> they finally okay. Yeah. You know. I had hopes for that like Carrie reboot they did too because I like Chloe Grace Ramirez, you know. Like okay, I was but at least that that one like out. it's not a good movie, but at least they brought a level of style to it. Yeah, like it wasn't a total wash, but it was just kind of redundant. Like yes. it was just like, well, I mean, the original '70s movie kind of just did this already, and this doesn't do much better. Yeah, like uh, if if they made it a little bit better, I would make an argument. I I could sit here and make the argument like. Oh, it's just for the next generation. Like, people that are not going like, to go back and it's watch. It's less problematic than that 70s movie, and yeah. it came out now. So, it's it's another but, tale. But here's the thing. is like, it's just not a good and... movie, though. Like, they didn't do a good version of it. Like, if, if somebody sat yeah. down and was like, hey, I'm going to try to make a good remake version of the Brian De Palma film, I'd be like, cool. But they just made a bad movie, and the Brian De Palma one does exist. So, yeah. Uh, we're, yeah, I mean, there's potential in taking this subject and doing it totally better, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I really hope they revamped it in some way. Uh, King was really critical of this when it came out, like he was saying like, oh yeah, it's one of the, it's one of the worst ones. And it's like, all right. I mean, it's not like the book was a golden ticket. He's like, you know? just, he's like, man, like this one's one of the worst ones, but it's just above the shining. Just above. <laughs> just, the, just a hair. Just, just a, a hair. bit. And just like, I like that on. one part. Right? I, I just, I can't, I'm sorry, man. Like as much as like I have danced macabre, 
And I know we're going to get into more like Stephen King heavily like involved stuff coming up in the next couple of movies. Uh, the, yeah. the last movie, I guess, of our batch. I do not care about his film, his film, like opinion on film. No, his film taste. Like I, I loved reading that book, Dance Macabre, because it's like, it's him kind of just surveying the horror scene at the time. Mm-hmm. And he makes some like cool calls. Like it's like this Cronenberg cat kind of neat. I don't know. Yeah. Like might be going places. And it's like, Oh, neat. And like, there's just little things like that where he's just kind of picking out at the time, pretty obscure movies. Well, and, and I could see like, him. Oh, this would grow into something. I could see so him getting neat. on board with Cronenberg because Cronenberg was like doing body horror, which is thing, I think thing that King tries to do. It's like one of those things. Yeah. Where like, do you know how like Scorsese, like you look, look at a list of his favorite directors. You're like, Oh, you, none of your movies look like these people. And it's like, it's because your favorite people are often the people you don't emulate because you can't or they're, you're not able to. Mm. Like, I think like that's what King, King – like, he wants – he loves, like, what Cronenberg's doing with body horror, but he doesn't – can't do it, so he does this other thing instead. That makes um, sense. I mean, we were kind of talking about how Dreamcatcher wasn't really doing the body horror. <laughs> it was trying right. almost, yeah, but he was he was failing pretty hard. Uh yeah. Yeah, I just I, – I know I, I have that book, and I, I've been always wanting to read it because I am interested. But, like, just that shining criticism of just, like, I get that it's not your book and that he changed so many things about it. But that is kind of the point of an adaptation, isn't it? Like, isn't it a better adaptation when someone takes it and makes it completely their own? Yeah. I mean, I think what, like, what we've kept saying is just, like – the it's i think his big issue is just the way the the jack torrance character is totally different yeah and i never really cared about that character either way like I, well i guess i like what jack's doing with it more because it's at least interesting but it's like the stuff that stood out from the book was always the danny stuff yeah and those are in common like so i i don't know what he felt about how but danny was there's a part of me that wa- i wonder if he took it personally like that like that like Stanley Wait, Kubrick you're changing my stuff. Yeah. No, like no, t- took it personally because I I see a lot of like the potential of having a lot of uh, Stephen King's struggles with alcoholism being put into Jack Torrance. Yeah, and Stephen and Stanley Kubrick looking at Jack Torrance and saying, "Oh no, this guy's evil right off the bat. He's just an evil person because only That's evil like, people would do this." And he, I think he what? might have been. Are you offended. saying I'm an evil person? Potentially, yeah. I I just it doesn't make sense to me because I've seen other movies of his where like this is not a good adaptation of this book. But you say it's good movie, and I don't, I can't get it. I also just think that like, mm-hmm. he doesn't know. I think he thinks like that carnival horror of like it is scary. Like I think he thinks it's scary, and I don't agree with him at all about what's scary. I, I think. think hearkening back to our like sleepwalkers thing, I think that's kind of the vibe he likes. You know, mm-hmm. is this kind of like B movie drive-in movie kind of thing that it's like, it's it's. Not exactly scary, but it's kind of, it's, you know, vicious and weird and, like, murderous and mm-hmm. stuff's happening, but it's not, like, actually going to make you stay up at night or anything. It's just good for a <laughs> laugh kind of thing. You no, know? and that's why I wonder if, like, like, he just... Wow, that crazy cat monster body slammed that dude onto a fence. Like, that's the thing. It's not like, oh, that hotel's messed up, and I, I don't know. Like... For a guy who can, like, write has a good turn of phrase that can be pretty scary sometimes... Uh, I mm-hmm. don't find him overly scary myself, personally. Yeah. Um, and, like, I would say, like, the, the book The Shining was not scary to me at all. There's a few moments where I was like, oh, this is good. But I would, like, immediately be like, oh, but the movie did it better. Like, made me more scared type of thing. When Danny's exploring the Overlook Hotel in the book, yeah. it's, like, not nearly as scary as he's doing in the book in the movie. For me. <sighs> so For me, like... 
like weirdly the only moment in Firestar of the book or the movie because it just reminded me of that scene in the book that I would say was like in any way scary was it's not it's not but let me just explain <laughs> uh when he comes home and like so, he knows something's wrong in his house and then he finds like his wife's body that was in the book I was like I was getting similar vibes to that scene in the conversation where he goes to the like hotel room next door and knows something happened there. And he's like looking for what is amiss. And then he flushes the toilet and blood comes out of it. Mm. Like, it's just this like, kind of like the mundane safe space has been like violated or something. Mm -hmm. Like there's something about that, that like got under my skin with conversation when I saw it too young. Uh, so this reminding me of that at all was like effective in a way yeah. of just like that would be screwed up like that kind of home invasion fear and again like, like even the conversation's not a horror movie at all but it just has that that idea there that's actually like that kind of puts that sense of like uh paranoia in your brain that does effect effectively for that movie. like something horrible has happened and i wasn't here to stop it yeah kind of dread or something or just like, like in and then in the conversations pure paranoia he he thinks people are watching him all over the place because he watches people yeah, yeah yeah so so um yeah yeah i don't know i just i think i think i just don't agree with king on what is scary and i agree like i i don't i don't i mean maybe i just have to sit down and talk to him and just be like do you think these things are scary or is just what your preferred horror film is? Because if that's the case, like that's, that's fine with me because I love the Friday 13th films. Like I like a good silly slasher film. Like I don't yeah. find them scary in the slightest. I just have a good time with them. But I also like want like, okay, a great example of this is James Wan's career. I want the conjuring to be a movie that, that scares me, but I also want uh, malignant to exist and be like, this is a movie that's just fun. Like I'm having a blast with this. Yeah, and it's like it can be violent and like weird, and it's sort of horror technically. It's horror, but in it's that, got like, like three other genres on it too. It's like yeah, it's like know? horror in that like broad strokes of like this takes place in the horror genre, but it's not like it's not terror or scary. But it's blended with something else. Yeah. It's not like pure like uncut horror. A great example know, of this recently is uh, Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass. It's not scary. Like I have not really found myself to be scared. I've had a couple jump scares, but it is like a horror show that is doing really fun things with horror stuff that I'm really enjoying because it has like a monster in it. And the monster is like, Oh, this is fun. And this is really good ideas, but it's not like haunting of Hill house, which is like a story that's like, Oh, this is terrifying. Like this here creepy crawly, like ghosts in the corners and stuff like that. Freaking me out. So, yeah, I, I guess I really do like my horror, like blended with something lighter to just make it more, enjoyable (laughs) like i'm not like at the edge of my seat all the time it's more just like wild and crazy or something like i i really enjoyed those it adaptations yeah and And then and i do too like there's a scene in in two where like it wasn't scary in the book it's not scary on screen i don't know why this would ever be scary but it's like the paul bunyan statue comes (laughs) alive and it was just like why would that be scary like who who would be scared of that like in Calgary, we have these, like, buffalo sculptures around, and be like, what if one of those was, like, chasing you? And it's like, that would be ridiculous. Yeah. What are you talking I about? I mean, Sorcerer's Apprentice like... literally did that with the bull in New York City, like, in Wall Street, and it was yeah. silly. Like, it wasn't scary. It was silly. Um, <laughs> I, no, so... I, 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 I'm with you, and, like, I want that to be a portion of horror that I want, but I also like being scared, so I want to be scared at the same time. So, like, there's, t- there's times mm. I'll go into a movie, like, I'm going to go into a movie, like, oh, I should be scared in this movie, and I get scared and it's great. And then there's times where I'm like, oh, I'm going to have fun with this movie. I have fun and it's great. So, 
But now, now I'm thinking of a variation on this, like, this inanimate statue is alive kind of thing. And, like, the angels in Doctor Who are, like, cool. Like, that's actually a good idea. Yes. Like, that's actually, like, if when you're not looking at it, it's coming up. Well, okay. I will, I'm going to make this. This is going to be a criticism that's going to be hated on, on the, if people are Doctor Who fans. I you think Doctor Who. episode? I, yeah. No, no. I like those. I love the angels. I think they're great. I think the only thing that, like, like where they mess up with them. I think yeah. the angels should have always been moving only off screen. There's one point in Stephen Merchant actually gets them to move on screen, and it's terrifying, yeah. terrible. And, and they should never have seen, had. Yeah. You should never see their monster face. Like their monster face is something that only exists off screen with the sounds, and then as soon as you look at it, and we as the audience should always only ever be like the main characters and see it still. Like, you don't know what they did, no. but that person's gone But now. there's many times <laughs> you know? where they turn around and the monster face is still on the angel. And yeah. it's like, that's not scary to me. I just, like, a, a, a statue that's moving, that, like, that is, that, that it moves and it's it's fully different shape, but it's not, like, changed its face or its complexions. It still looks like a statue would be. Yeah. Anyways, but this, but it's oh, a puppy show. Or now, now I'm thinking of like, I recently revisited mouth of madness. There's this thing with this painting that's changing in a hotel. Yeah. And it's like, it's just cool. Like, it's just a great idea of just like, every time you visit this lobby, you're like, what was that? It's different. Right. And then well, eventually it's like, Oh no, it's obviously different. Cause they're, they're all overly like the completely different. It's yeah. a hellscape now. But, but early like, on, it's just kind of like, was that person's head? That's what I mean. Like that, that that's the, that's one of the good example of it. A better, a good example of this, and even in video games, is in Red Dead Redemption Two. There's the um, oh, what's the mysterious man? I forget his name. There's a mysterious man that's like kind of behind all of the dark evil. He's kind of like alluded to be the devil. If you find oh, okay. this hutch, you find this hut in the middle of the marshland. You kind of come into it. And as the game goes on, you can see his painting of him slowly come to life. The more interactions you've had with things that he's connected to in the story, there's more and more of him on the painting. No, no, okay. sorry. It's, there's That's... less and less of him on the painting because he's, he's seeping out of the painting. It's actually really okay. creepy because you can only find him in the evening in a marshland in which the cannibal people live. So it's like already a scary situation where there's alligators. That, that's cool. I actually didn't know that that character followed up. He He's he's in the first game. Yes. But they don't really he's have like, anything as elaborate for him in that. No, so. yeah. Well, this this game is like Rockstar doing like all the great stuff like that they do. Just they have a lot more engine space now. Oh, it's yeah, it's it's pretty next level. So, so but OK. Anyways. Yeah, just that that core notion isn't inherently not scary. It's just the way King handles it is always kind of campy and weird. That's what I mean. And like, I, I'm OK like, with that completely. But don't tell me that Shining's not a great movie because it is because it terrifies me. And it's classic. Like it's mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, it's fine. We got off topic. But uh, final final point for me, uh, all the fire stunts and stuff are, of course, like pretty real. To the point where I was like really concerned about those horses in the last scene because they flee a flaming barn and it's not like it's not flaming. <laughs> so I bet they're terrified in real life. Like there's yeah, no wait, way. Definitely. Animals. Those stuff, horses are just chilling out. Like, like this is nah. the same era where every way but loose was like like a giant bomb, like a like box office hit. Like this mm-hmm. is the same era where like, people did not care about animals on sets at this point. Like I don't. Th- yeah, there's some note about like no fire stunt people were hurt, and it's like that's cool. Uh, <laughs> like those horses didn't really agree, so I don't know. Yeah. I hope they're fine. 
but yeah, it was it was pretty messed up. But yeah, uh, Charlie burns everybody. Starts throwing fireballs like Mario or something. <laughs> <laughs> like I was really like throughout it's just kind of like stuff bursts into flames but then suddenly in this last rampage it's just like no there's full-on like meteors flying out of her and blowing up golf carts and whatever like it was just all out not nonsense and then she just goes and hangs out with our carney and it's over yeah <laughs> so yeah great yeah fire starter uh mvp time sure uh i guess i'll go first um it's barely connected to the movie. It's especially since I talked about how they contributed, which was just like, here's a grab bag of songs. What do you want? Uh, Tangerine Dream. I might actually like listen to this score on its own just for moody beats. Like there's stuff where they're just like going down the road and there's just 80s stuff going on. And I like that in isolation. It doesn't exactly like boost the movie, but. <laughs> It was there, and I was happy that this album happened, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, dream. it's not shocking, because, like, even when we did Maximum Overdrive, like, ACDC in a really bad movie elevated, like, oh, man, this is fun. At least this is fun, you know? Yeah. So. And I'm assuming it's their synths and stuff that are underscoring, like, when he's using his powers and stuff. There's, like, these weird warbly sounds. So, it's there. It's sort of helping, I guess, when mm-hmm. her hair blows back. Weird yeah. music's there. So, yeah. Uh, Thanks, Tangerine Dream, for being a part of this, sort of. My MVP is uh, Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Again, just because, like, I mean, she's young. She comes. She's coming off of E.T. at this point, which was obviously her big, like, breakout film. Um, mm. And you could just tell, like, right off the bat, like, she is a good child actor. Like, she's able to carry herself with some pretty big, like, heavyweights. And even though, like, George C. Scott's, a, like, a poorly casted choice in this movie, uh, yeah, she's still, like, kind of selling this relationship on her end. Yeah, when when he's kind of the janitor in her prison cell, basically, and they're talking and stuff, it's, it's nothing she's doing that's weird about it. No. It's just, like, yeah, it's just the John Rainbird character kind of inherently. <laughs> So. so I don't know. Drew Drew got me through a lot of things. Like I thought she did a good job with like having to deal with some pretty mature stuff, especially because like this like I don't know. Like I, I would love to talk to John Barrymore and just be like, why like ET to this? Like this seems like such a dark, deep, like like angry movie to put your daughter into so young. There there's some story about her like having this book before the movie was made and like wanting to be in it or something. Like it's not. Unless that was like publicity to her. I know, but that's what I mean. Like where it's like this story is sort of kid friendly, but it's not like it's like like a kid could totally comprehend this entire tale. They just probably shouldn't read it because that man's eyes exploded or whatever, you know, (laughs) like it's like it's not quite right. But I guess, you know, kid actors grow up faster. Well, and not just that she's not just a kid actor, but she's also like a child of of actors as well. So she yeah, like has that like Hollywood royalty um, idea attached to her so she might not be a normal person yeah I've been, but apparently she, she was innately drawn to some of this like i've been somehow. listening to a lot of willow music uh, which is willow smith mm-hmm. and like in her lyrics she talks about like what it is to be like hollywood royalty and how weird of a life it is because like no matter what she like will smith and jada pinkett could try to have like normal kids they're never gonna be normal because they're will smith and jada pinkett like so it's like what mm-hmm. do you do 
So I just like, and then how do you like, like, is she, is Willow allowed to take advantage of her father's situation to be creative and an artist or is it wrong that she takes advantage of it? You know what I mean? And she talks about those yeah. things in her songs. Like just pondering the nepotism. Yeah. Oh, actually, I wanted to bring this up as like a fun trivia note I found out because we did this episode. Uh, Freddie Jones, who played that like adult uh, professor I was talking about, mm-hmm. his son is Toby Jones, like the <laughs> character actor we love. Yeah. So I don't know. I just thought it was funny. It was like, oh, there's sort of nepotism maybe because he, he made it into the movie biz and then his son did too. But... Toby, yeah, I never considered is, Toby Jones. Toby Jones had is like one of those like dad. classic bit act. Like he is your uh, what's the word? Like he can never be a leading man, but he's always like a bit actor because he. Yeah, he has a I face. think he did play Capote in that like other Capote movie he that did came play out, Capote Infamous. In that other, because he actually looks more like Capote than Philip yeah. Seymour does. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I, I, I really enjoyed him recently-ish as, like, the auctioneer in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Oh, man, <laughs> like, did you know it's just Freddie Jones is also in Dune and Elephant Man? Yeah, he's also a David Lynch alumni to some extent, yeah. Cool. So, yeah. Uh, he doesn't get as much time as I would have wanted, but he gets one good scene in this. Yes, so. he does get yeah. one good scene in this. Uh, but, cool, yeah. So, runner-up as well, but, yeah, yeah. But okay, Drew Barrymore and Tangerine Dream. Uh, did you have a question to yeah for sure this time um, around? Yeah. Tell us about Richard Bachman. I feel like we've we've been through this podcast and we've talked about Stephen King a lot. Like obviously it's a Stephen King batch we're doing. Richard Bachman yeah. is like a big part of Stephen King mythos, like his like his books and his t- style of writing. And I've never read a Richard Bachman book. I've seen a bunch of Richard Bachman movies. One of them I really like. Uh, but I've never read a book. So like you who's read a lot of Stephen King and read, um, have you read any Richard Bachman? I've read, I think I've read the four core ones. And then I really like the regulators, which is also credited to Richard Bachman. Yeah. Cause he wrote, uh, now if I get this right, cause I, this is, he wrote the regulators and the, what's the other one? Desperation. Desperation. They're yeah. like compart like uh, companion pieces. Like they're the same kind of story, but in two different universes because one's in the Stephen King verse and one's in the Richard Bachman verse, and he writes. Yeah, them in two and styles. and they're. I read them back to back because you're kind of supposed to, but I really tore through the regulators because it's it it was way more like Twilight Zone to me. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like a TV show. It's kind of, it reminded me of that episode where like the little kid has like powers to do whatever he wants, and he like throws Nancy Cartwright into the TV kind of things. Mm-hmm like oh is that like that's also in because isn't that also twilight in zone? the movie in yeah, the twilight okay. zone the movie like, yeah yeah, yeah. Meant, okay yeah but yes yes i th- there's an episode too where the, but nancy cartwright's not in it <laughs> but whatever like the tv b- world bleeding into reality yeah. or something like it's like it's the same demon but it's like it's enacting its evil schemes in a different way well so it's, it's and the way that i understood it is like one was like because stephen king wanted to write more like sci-fi type thriller books and he went off and did that with Bachman, so he didn't get pigeonholed into horror. Part of it was also, like, this weird publishing limit at the time. Like, the, they didn't want to oversaturate the market with the same person too often. But Stephen King was writing very voraciously. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, I have a bunch of books just sitting around. Like, can I try this thing? Like, he basically made a pseudonym and published these without any, like... Stephen King notoriety attached to them in the seventies. Well, and he even like went uh, under a different because he 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 started off at Doubleday, 
And then yeah. he started printing um, Richard Bachman books at Signet, which is actually a pretty big deal too, because he had a big falling out with Doubleday, uh, like in the mid. Are they also Viking? Like, is that just their hardcover branding? Uh, he he moved everything over away from Doubleday because he had such a big falling out from him. Like that, okay. th- the story goes that like that's why Pet Cemetery got published was because he needed to contractually fulfill one more book with Doubleday. And he just gave them Pet Cemetery, which is a book he finished, completed, and he didn't want to release because he thought it was too dark. Yeah, that that one's like border. Like, part of my understanding was like the justification for Bachman was it was darker stuff. Like that's at least how he treats it later. Like it was thinner is also one. Yeah, I, uh, I just think of like which is Running Man, and it's like that's not darker. That's like sci-fi. I think it's like in his kind of like back note stuff, it'll just be kind of like, yeah, that guy, he like the Richard Bachman character was like crazier than he was, you know? Uh, So it's like, yeah, we found this old manuscript in Richard Bachman's attic or something like that. Like he just commits a little bit to this fantasy. Well, no, And that's it. Cause that's how uh, he, he does kill Richard Bachman in real life. Like he, he had an obituary in the newspaper yeah, for Richard he, Buckman. He died. And so when, I think it's when Blaze was published or something. Yeah, it's and like, so when oh, the regulators yeah, we found another one. was a book, they were like, <laughs> oh, we found this like manuscript and we're releasing it posthumously for Richard Bachman. We got his wife's permission. Yeah, so exactly. it's like, yeah okay, Stephen, it's fun. Yeah, he, he had a uh, good time yeah. with it. I, I mean, I bring this up because, I mean, I still want to talk about it a bit more, but I bring this up because next, next week's movie is The Dark Half, which was uh, Stephen King kind of like, playing with this idea in real life mixed with like the fiction world. Like what if that was a real person? Yeah. Like what if you had a pseudonym who wrote some completely different books to you, but it was actually just like another personality person that you turned into type of thing. And then you tried to kill that person and then they came back to haunt you. Like he kind of like, or if you, he was if killing when you Richard go into Bachman. That dark place to write like that person's real. Yeah, like he he was killing Richard Bachman, and he came up with this idea for the book, The Dark Half. So, yeah, no, it's it's a neat kind of correlation to that. I feel like Secret Windows around this time too, and that's sort of like that too. Because Secret Window is like, uh, that's um, four past midnight. Yeah, so that's just a little a couple year. Well, when did Dark Half get published? That was like eighty nine. I thought they're both late eighties. So, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, um, just okay. Ideas so you read the first. Around. You read four. You read like, you read you read Rage. Oh, yeah. I read that like the Bachman books, which was published in the eighties. Uh, Rage is terrible. Like it's gotten taken out of publication because it's it's about a school shooting essentially, mm-hmm. but it's so aggro and juvenile in a way that's like tough to. It's it's not especially well plotted either. Okay. <laughs> like and you read what were the other great. four? So there's Rage, Blaze, Running Man. Uh, Running Man and The Long Walk are also in there, okay. and I Long Walk's one of my favorites actually. Like, I really like that story. Uh, for it, it'll be a bit dated by the time this comes out, but it's kind of like Squid Game for the kids out there. Uh, <laughs> Will it be a bit dated? It's, it's, I feel like very that show much is like that. That show is gonna continue to be talked about for a few more weeks. Okay, uh, it's kind of like that first game in Squid Game. <laughs> Like, but drawn out to a whole novel. Did you just hear? Okay, this is this is going to actually date us because this is the news that came out today. So when we hear this on our podcast a couple weeks from now, um, yeah, they just announced that this is their highest watched original TV show. Yeah, I I heard it was on track for that anyway. Yeah, and uh, 
it that's sort of weird to me but okay but like it kind of like opens up opens up a whole new world of like how content will be received in in like on a global level like this is just like like a show market can produce something huge any network any country can like can produce something huge in america like it's the gangnam style of like it crossed over Yeah, yeah yeah Anyways, but uh, I hear to watch anyway, it subtitled, uh, not dubbed. The dub changes a gosh, lot. What's the fourth one in the Bachman books, though? I can't remember. Oh, I can't remember. It's not Blaze. That's more recent. Yeah. Um, I, I don't. I don't know. I've never read a Bachman book. The only one I have yeah. is Regulators because I want to read uh, both of those two. I'm actually pretty happy with my thinner copy because it's from the '80s. Like it's still fully credited as a Bachman thing. It commits to the Bachman facade. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that he's real. And it's it's kind of a fun read, super dated like depiction of uh, the Roma people. <laughs> it's really unfortunate. Roadwork, uh, sorry. Oh yeah, roadwork. Okay, that's another one. Um, <laughs> I wait, feel like... is that the one that was in the the four? Yeah, that's in the four. It goes Weird. rage. I can't it goes tell rage, you what that story's about. Uh, long walk, roadwork, and then Running Man. Okay, Running Man's pretty fun. Like well, uh, is it the, anything the movie like is more fun? Okay, because I was about to say like I really like that movie. That movie's a lot of fun. Yeah, the movie injects more cheese into it, but it's it's still basically that. Also, very Squid Game. <laughs> yeah, that is <laughs> like know? that is actually like in my mind. I was like when you're making the argument. I, I never read the Long Walk, but like when I was like, oh, you're gonna make a comparison to a Bachman book, and it's not gonna be Running Man because that is actually because uh, that's in the, the game. bleakness of of the one is vibes better i feel like it's like one drawn out game versus like the nonsense that's happening in that movie i mostly remember that movie that's fine uh that movie's a lot of fun like you said man sub-zero who's the is that the hockey guy great yeah that's who i was remembering (laughs) (laughs) who we saw in dead heat he was uh you know in that movie Um, but anyway yeah i don't know i I just i I want i'm talking because like i feel like nowadays there's there seems to be king I like, almost want him to like continue to have the pseudonym where it's like Stephen King is the horror meister, and so like when he does like psychological or when he does like crime, it's like he has a pseudonym that like we all know it's him, but he's like that way. It's like not like Stephen King writing the Mercedes trilogy. It's oh, it's it's his like crime f- fiction yeah, author like that he guy developed who, or something. Who he came up with when he did hard case crime <laughs> type of thing. I guess I sort of love that that like does just sort of default back into Stephen King well, stuff. And, and, by as the third I said, one. as I said, hard case crime stuff. I was like, his yeah. newest one also is just like a it's a Pennywise book. I, like, I read that one actually on based on what you were telling me about it, and yeah, it's 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 uh, more his wheelhouse yeah. than than usual. So did you like it? It was pretty good though. Yeah, yeah no, I had a, a pretty good time. Okay. Okay. Uh, cool. So yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, Richard Bachman's pretty great. I, I, a lot of them have been republished just under his name now because the well, the it's called out. now. They're called the Bachman books, is what they get covered now, right? Like, is the big thing when those four come yeah. out. Yeah, and I know Rage probably has some like oh forbidden text or something, but it's like it's it's just not very good. <laughs> like beyond it's like being inappropriate, which is probably why he was comfortable pulling it from the shelves because it's like it's, it's also yeah, just not that. It's good. like this this isn't isn't quality so yeah. nobody really needs to bother with this one cool i just wanted uh, to I was ask still curious though we are getting into yeah. like i said we're getting into the dark half next week so which explores a lot of this yeah uh but yeah if you want to ask us anything you can tweet at okay video podcast or email ryan at okay or nathan at okay uh 
Uh, we are looking at the dark half, which was written and directed by George A. Romero, who uh, we'll talk about at length next time. Um, this came out the same year as Needful Things, so we're going to get a different interpretation of Sheriff Alan Pangborn, <laughs> yeah. which I'm curious about, too. Uh, 1993, the year of the movies. Uh, until then, I'm Nathan. And I'm Ryan. Bye-bye for now. Thank <laughs> you.